Let's turn in the Word of God to Revelation chapter 2 and read the message to the, the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Let's seek once again the Lord's blessing upon his holy word. Our Father, we are thankful for the hymns of the faith, which we bring to you in worship and praise. And we thank you for the reminder that we have had of the determination to follow you, and to be content in your will, and to obey you, and to glorify you, come what may. And so we pray that you would be pleased to take this message, which you have written for the instruction of your churches in all the ages, and we pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word, and teach us how we are to think about this world, in its sufferings and blessings. And we look to you for your help and blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Last Lord's Day evening, we began a series of sermons on these letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And we're continuing this evening uh, with the letter to the church at Smyrna. Last time, well, it was two weeks ago, uh, last time I sought to explain the, the first section within what I call the right framework. Um, they are those who have taught over the years that the letters to the seven churches represent not individual churches existing at the time that this was written, but they say that they are letters written about the development of the churches through the course of all church history, so that each church uh, represents a period of history marked by this condition, these conditions uh, in the churches wherever they may be, so that the church in the letter to the church in Ephesus represents a period of history beginning at the time this letter was written, continuing to a certain period, and then the next letter represents another section of history, and all the churches basically have the same features and experience. That is uh, what I regard, uh, and not, not uh, only me, but many good commentators regard this as a, uh, a, a real error, uh, uh, not, not the meaning and intent of the Lord Jesus Christ at all. Uh, the, the section in Revelation 2 and 3 represents seven churches that existed at the time that John the Apostle received the vision in, uh, on the island of Patmos and sent these letters to seven existing churches, each of which was marked by certain features and experiences. So that is, that is the right framework with which to understand these letters in Revelation 2 and three, they're real churches that existed in the last century, last decade of the first century of the Christian era. 
The second part of the framework I have to be a little bit more modest about because there is uh, quite a difference of opinion among commentators uh, about the meaning of the word angels. Each of the letters begins with the command of the Lord Jesus to the angel of the church in. And then uh, Jesus dictates precisely what that angel is to uh, receive for the instruction of the churches. Well, these are not, at least in my opinion, and the opinion of many good commentators, these are not guardian angels. These are not heavenly beings. The word angel is the standard word for messenger. And last time, two weeks ago, I took you to several passages in which you can clearly see that the messengers are human messengers. Uh, John, John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus asking him if he was the coming one. Those were not angels. The same word is used. They were messengers. And the Lord Jesus, when he was going to certain places, would send messengers. And again, although he has command of angels, he sent some of his servants to deliver messages. And that's the way I take these angels of the seven churches, messengers who were responsible to deliver the letter written to their church along with the rest of the book of Revelation. In fact, all of the churches were to regard all of the letters as relevant to themselves. That's why we have that repeated refrain at the end of each letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that, I think, is the safe way to regard these seven letters. This is the right framework within which to understand these letters. So if you have questions about uh, about either of those points, I'd be glad to discuss it with you. You can ask me and we can speak about that. Well, this evening, we are working through the letter to the church in Smyrna. And I'm going to touch on five things in these four verses. It's a, it's a pretty brief letter. Uh, uh, when you look at the length of the letters to the various churches, this uh, this might be the briefest letter to any of the churches. So we're going to touch on five points this evening. And um, the first is the city of the church. Then we're going to look at Christ's commendation of the church, Christ's challenge and charge of uh, to the church, and Christ's encouragements to the church. And then I couldn't come up with a C somehow with my last point. It's the uh, application for us. Those are the, the points that we'll look at this evening. So let us first consider the city of the church. Here we have a church which resides in the city of Smyrna. Smyrna was a beautiful, affluent, politically favored city. There was rivalry among these cities. They were Roman cities. And for example, the church at Ephesus was a rival to the church at uh, Smyrna. Smyrna was a rival. Uh, they, had, uh, they had boasting rights about various things. Uh, Smyrna was located due north of Ephesus, about, about 50 miles, and uh, it was north and a little bit west of Ephesus. William Hendrickson states that Smyrna claimed to be the first city of Asia in beauty and size. It had a fine harbor, which was one of the reasons for its affluence. It was a major trade port, and uh, the trade that went through Smyrna brought a lot of money and a lot of resources to the city of Smyrna. It was also politically favored, a politically favored city. This was a this was a big deal in, uh, in the first century there uh, when this letter was written. Uh, I don't know if we have the same uh, situation in any of our cities that there's a special political favoritism which occurs. Certainly Washington, D.C. would be the kind of place that is a politically favored place. But it was so in the, in the days of the Apostle John and the existence of these seven churches. 
One commentator notes, and I quote him directly, already in 195 BC, a temple to Dea Roma, Rome personified as a goddess, a goddess had been built and dedicated in Smyrna, and the city had acquired a reputation for its patriotic loyalty to the empire. Around the year AD 25, many Asian cities were competing with one another for the coveted favor of erecting a temple to the Emperor Tiberius. And Tiberius, you may know, uh, the Roman emperors would be worshipped as gods. So there was, uh, there was competition. Where will a temple for Tiberius be built for his worship? And the privilege was granted to Smyrna alone. So that's why I say that Smyrna was a politically favored city. It was well known for its allegiance to the Roman Empire. And this sets the stage for what we read about the church. This is the setting of the church. It's the city in which it, it existed, the city of Smyrna. So much then for the city of the church. The second place we consider Christ's commendation of the church in verse 9. Christ's commendation of the church. And I'll read the verse again. I know, says Christ to the church, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Our Lord and Savior, the Lord and Savior of the brethren there at Smyrna, tells them that he is aware of all their circumstances and of the future. The Lord tells every one of the seven churches that he is intimately acquainted with their character, with their trials, and with their future. I know, says the Lord Jesus, every time he addresses one of the churches, he says, I know, seven times, in the, uh, basically the identical language. What Jesus knows about the church in Smyrna is their tribulation and their poverty. These Christians were pressed by great difficulty, in fact, very great difficulty. They were opposed by hostile and powerful enemies. Basically, they had the same enemies that the Lord Jesus Christ had. They, uh, they had the Jewish people boasting that they are the people of God. You see in the, in the text, it says, the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not. Well, they were Jews. There was a synagogue in Smyrna, and it was populated by Jewish people. But what the, what the Jews meant is we're the only legitimate people of God. In the, in the days that this was written, there were certain laws on the books of Rome. And they, had, uh, they characterized churches either as legitimate churches or illegitimate. There was a Latin phrase... Uh, for churches that were outlawed, religio illicita, they were called. And the Jews said, well, we're the ones who are legitimate. We are the legitimate worshipers of Jehovah, and nobody else is. So this is what, this is what the language of Revelation 2.9 means. The blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not. Well, they were Jews. But they weren't the only legitimate, in fact, they were not legitimate worshipers of Jehovah at all. So they, these Jewish people were, as it were, pointing to Christians and saying, well, they're not legitimate worshipers of God at all. They were implying that these people were outlaw worshipers. And Rome had a category like that. And so they, uh, they, uh, the Lord Jesus himself from heaven says they are blaspheming. They are casting bitter insults on Christians and by extension of their Savior. Because remember, the church exists to worship Jesus Christ, to represent the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. And these uh, Jewish synagogue people are saying that they are not worshipers of God 
at all. They were blaspheming. And the claim that these uh, Jews made was intended to expose the church to the Roman authorities. And this is precisely what happened at this period in history. The Roman authorities, at the instigation of the Jews, would arrest these believers and would demand that they offer incense to Caesar as to a god. This, of course, was something that Christians would not do. Even just taking a pinch of incense and throwing it on fire was an act of worship to a rival god. The Christians would not do it. In AD 55, now the letter, you might be interested in knowing the letter, uh, by the best authorities we have in our, our good commentators, the letter was written in AD 96. Polycarp, who was a bishop in Smyrna, basically a pastor in Smyrna, in AD 155, was arrested by the Romans, and upon his refusal to offer incense to the existing Caesar, was burned at the stake. The records, the public records state that among the people who helped gather the fire for the burning of Polycarp were the Jews. Pagans, yes, but the Jews, the records state, were very aggressive in making sure they had plenty of fire to burn Polycarp at the stake. So that was part, that was not all of the fulfillment of what Jesus says, but it was part of it. Uh, so that's what actually happened in the, cap in, the, in the city of Smyrna. In this letter to the church, the Lord Jesus tells these Christians that uh, the enemy's claim was false, and these enemies were nothing other than the dupes of the devil. Added to this tribulation that Jesus describes in verse 9 is the experience of crushing poverty. The Lord Jesus tells the church, I know your tribulation and your poverty. That word for poverty is not a minor financial inconvenience. It's a word for extreme poverty, for crushing poverty. It was a word, a word reserved for the deepest poverty known in those days. And some people today, in our culture, say that they are poor. It's a very interesting thing to me when someone says they're poor and I find out that they have a cell phone, that they have a data plan, that they may have a cable TV in their homes, and they have all kinds of conveniences, but they say, well, we're poor. That's, that's not the kind of poverty that the Christians in Smyrna have. They had crushing poverty because of their profession of Christians and because of their honesty ethics, they were often excluded from jobs. They had trouble getting a fair wage, enough to pay their bills and attain the things that they needed. Now, you say, Brother Frank, you said that this verse was about the commendation of the Lord Jesus to the, the uh, church in Smyrna. And this doesn't sound much like a commendation. But notice the contrast that Jesus makes. And here's the point. Jesus says, you undergo pressing tribulation. You have strong enemies who are uh, influential and against you. And you have crushing poverty. But you are rich. There's the commendation. And the commendation is set in contrast to the trials and the poverty of these Christians. Now, the Lord doesn't say what this richness is, but it was an encouragement to the people of God to say, although other people look at us and they will dismiss us and they will despise us, but the King of heaven and earth says to us, you are rich. What was that richness? The Lord doesn't specify, but it includes... All the graces which shine in difficult circumstances. You see, many people, when they don't have the things that they think they should have, become sour and discontent and rebellious. But what is involved in this statement, this commendation of the Lord, you are rich, is their 
faithfulness to the Lord. It includes all of those uh, graces which shine in difficult circumstances. When you have to go to your uh, your friends and neighbors, maybe to the, the job at, uh, at uh, a low-level paying job, and you speak about your Savior and you show a face of joy, satisfaction, and faith, you see that is richness that the world knows nothing of. Faithfulness to the Lord, faith in his provisions, a life of communion with him, a determination not to turn back to the world. Think of the words of the Apostle Peter. When people are leaving Jesus because they think his sayings are too hard, Jesus says to the disciples, will you also go away? Peter's response is, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is that determination to be faithful to the Lord Jesus. It is a satisfaction with the word of God and the worship of his name. This was the commendation of the church in Smyrna. You have crushing poverty, you have powerful enemies, but you are rich. This commendation would bring much spiritual joy to these believers. And it's very interesting, isn't it? It's just a little phrase in the middle here. There, there are other things that encourage them as well. But this little phrase was a gem for them. It's the notice of Jesus Christ that his people are rich in grace a gra and a, a richness which the Lord Jesus himself appreciates. It's his commendation. This truth that the Lord marks all our virtues is calculated to encourage all the people of God. The Lord Jesus marks all the graces and faithfulness of his people, whatever their circumstances are. And it is calculated to help us to press on in grace, whatever our difficulties may be. Our Lord knows us, just as he could say of that church and all the churches, I know your works. I know your works. Our Lord knows us. He knows our trials, our real character, and his smile rests on his people who are, to use the phrase from this morning's sermon, in him. He knows them. And he smiles upon them. Now sometimes believers may wonder whether or not they please God. We ought to please God. That ought to be our aim, our ambition, and our life. But sometimes Christians have a little bit of difficulty as to whether or not they please God. But the Bible does teach that his people are enabled by his grace to please him. And this is one of those places which evidences that the Lord is pleased with his people in the midst of their deepest need. He says, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty, but you are rich. That's his commendation of them. And think about uh, this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, once one of the passages that helps us to understand that it is not impossible to please God. God is not the kind of a God who says, well, try as hard as you like, it's never enough. If you, might, you might have a boss sometime that's like that. Uh, you, you work hard, you work extra hours, uh, and it never seems to be enough. All your boss notices is your failures, your, well, your supposed failures. But listen, in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, he says, Furthermore, we, Paul says, Furthermore, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. The Apostle Paul is telling them, we taught you how to please God and indeed you are pleasing him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, but by faith and dependence upon the Lord, we can please God. 
Noah pleased God. Abraham pleased God. Christian, you, when you are faithful and do the will of God, God smiles. The Lord Jesus Christ smiles upon us. And here is his commendation of the people of God in Smyrna. You are rich. Despite your many sufferings. So we've looked at the city of the church, the city of Smyrna, Christ's commendation of the church. Thirdly, Christ's challenge and charge to the church. Christ's challenge and charge to the church. And by the word charge, of course, I mean what he wants them to do. They have a challenge, a serious challenge, and they have a charge, they have direction from Jesus, how they are to handle it. Up front in verse 10, the Lord Jesus warns them about the challenge that they are going to face. Very significant what he says at the beginning of it. He says, do not fear. Do not fear. Well, fear is because they have suffering. Suffering is on the horizon. And more than ordinary suffering is approaching them, and they are to face it as Jesus opens it up to them, what's going to happen to them. They are to face it without fear. Now, Jesus is not asking his people to be inhuman and not to feel the weight of suffering. That's not the point. Jesus knows that it's, there's going to be suffering. There are going to be tears shed. There are going to be earnest prayers raised. But we are not to turn back as that suffering approaches. We are not to shrink back as that suffering impacts us. That's what he means when he says, do not fear. The enemies that they see are as we have read, a synagogue of Satan. These are the people who say they are Jews and are not, who are blaspheming the Christians. And they are a synagogue of Satan. They are Satan's messengers, Satan's workers. And the devil is going to use his influence to have some of these Christians thrown into prison. Jesus tells them, verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold the devil. These Jews are the instruments, and their master is the devil, and they're doing their master's work. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. So this is the, this is the, the trial, uh, the challenge that Jesus brings before the people of God in the church at Smyrna. God, Satan is testing the people of God. And at the same time, God has not withdrawn his hand. God is also testing the people of God. When Satan tests the people of God, God tests the people of God. Different purposes. Satan means to unhinge the Christian, to cause the Christian to be unfaithful, to cause the Christian to flee and dishonor his God. And God is determined that his people will glorify him through the trials of that they experience. You might, you might uh, look at uh, for a quick moment. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. Because here is, uh, here's, here's Peter's description of the relationship between the sufferings of the Christian and their ultimate victory. First Peter chapter 1. Verse 6, Peter has been setting before the Christians the wonderful blessings they receive from God. And he says in verse 6, And this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you're going to go through trials, Christian. You're going to go through trials. They're going to be testings. And those testings are being used by God to reveal 
your graces and your faith. That's what uh, that's what Peter says, and that's the point of Jesus in Revelation two ten. You will be tested. Their trial will be relatively brief. That's the reason why you have the number ten there. It is a, of course, a difference of opinion among commentators. What does this ten mean? Uh, it's 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 definitely a brief period of time, maybe more than ten days. Uh, it could, but it could also be literal. And I have no reason to think that it couldn't be literal. There's nothing in the text that gives away that this ten is not really ten days, maybe maybe twenty days. But uh, Jesus specifies ten days. You'll have tribulation ten days. So that's the challenge that Jesus issues to the church at Smyrna. Christ's charge, that's what Christ wants them to do. They have to, look at, they have to look full in the face at the approaching trial. They're not to hide themselves from it. They just see it. They're to evaluate. They're to understand it. And their task is be faithful as long as the short trial continues. Jesus says, be faithful until death. That word, until, is very interesting. If you have a, that something that you, that you say, until this happens. Well, it's the thing that happens that marks the end. Until marks the end when the thing concludes, and it's a real event. In other words, here's, here's, a, here's an example. Suppose your parents, you want to go out of the house, and your parents say, uh, you cannot go out until your brother gets back. Is your brother going to come back? Is that the uh, is that the time when you'll be able to go? Well, yes, that's the point. You cannot go out until your brother comes back. Well, Jesus says to his disciples, to his believing people, be faithful until death. Death marks the end of the trial. You see. That's the point that Jesus makes. This is not, well, you might or you might not die. No, Jesus tells them up front. Some of you are going to be cast into prison. You must be faithful up to and including the point of death. So Jesus lays the, lays the cards out, as it were, right on the table. You're going to be cast into prison, and the end of that trial will be death. Jesus says, be faithful as long as it continues be faithful until the point of death. So that's Jesus' challenge and charge to the church. So we've looked at the, the city of the church, Christ's commendation of the church, Christ's challenge and charge to the church, and now Christ's encouragements for the church. Christ's encouragements for the church. One of the things, that, the first thing that the Lord Jesus Christ does in this letter to the church at Smyrna is he presents himself. He says, I want you, dear believers in me, I want you to remember who it is who's speaking to you. I want you to remember who I am and what my history, the history of salvation is. He describes himself as the first and the last. Now, uh, generally, the first and the last are two separate things. The first is at the beginning, the last is at the end, but Jesus says, I'm, not, I'm the first, I will be the last. He's the first and the last. In other words, he is the eternal God. He is the God who knows no boundaries, who knows no time limits or constraints. He is the eternal God, and that is the power of his identity. He wants the Christians to know who's in charge and who they may depend upon. He is the first and the last. And then he describes himself this way as well. He says, I want you to look at me. When you're going through the trial, I want you to keep your eyes upon me. I'm the one who has been dead and has lived. He is the one who went to the cross, again, under the... Uh, persecution of wicked men and he gave himself up to death but he conquered death and he rose again from the dead he said this is the one you serve I'm the one who has defeated death 
And you may understand that although you must be faithful unto death, I'm the one who is able to raise you from the dead and to give you, well, he gives you life in death and life after death and life in resurrection. So Jesus wants to encourage his people. He says, I want you to look at who I am. Remember who you serve, the eternal God and the one who has conquered death. So that's one encouragement for the church. The second thing he said he does to encourage his people who are going through these difficult times is again that he knows. He knows. Now I know that I'm repeating myself. I, I'm not I, I'm not become so absent-minded yet uh, that I don't remember what I said uh, 15 minutes ago. Jesus says, I know, I know what exactly what you're going through. And this is a real encouragement to the church. It ought to be an encouragement to us. It is a vital encouragement to the church and to individual believers. The world despises them. The world ignores them, minimizes them. And sometimes a Christian may go through trials in which he is tempted to sing that old spiritual, nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Then it goes, nobody knows but Jesus. It may seem to you sometimes that no one knows of your difficulties. No one knows of your service. We'll never conclude that nobody knows about the trials that you go through and the sufferings you endure and the service you bring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus knows. We have a find him in our hymnal. You probably have sung this before. I'm pretty sure. I don't know too many churches that don't sing this hymn. Number 496. Go labor on. Spend and be spent. Thy joy to do the Father's will. It is the way the Master went. Should not the servant tread it still? Go labor on. Tis not for naught. Thine earthly loss is heavenly gain. Men heed thee, love thee, praise thee not. The Master praises. What are men? Go labor on enough while here. If he shall praise you, thee. If he deign thy willing heart to mark and cheer, no toil for him will be in vain. That's the encouragement of the phrase that Jesus begins his charge, his challenge to his church. I know, I know, whoever doesn't know, Jesus knows. He knows when you serve him. He knows when you obey, you are, you are, obey him, and the Lord Jesus Christ is pleased. Well, Jesus gives that, that he knows of their circumstances. And then the next thing about the, the encouragement for the church is the reward. The reward that Jesus promises. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you... The crown of life. Notice those uh, those pronouns. I, Jesus Christ, will give you the crown of life. Think about it this way for a moment. The Lord Jesus Christ has his reward. In fact, in Revelation, he says, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. Think about it. The day is coming. When the people of God will see their Savior face to face. We want to see him. We do. We want to see his face. And he's going to come with a crown. Now that crown, uh, probably a wreath. Uh, that's, that's the way the word crown is often used in, in that culture of those times. He's got, a, he's got a wreath. And you, by your perseverance, receive from him the wreath of life, the crown of life, the reward, the celebrated reward. It's what Paul looked forward to 
He said, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And Jesus says that he's going to do it personally. He's not going to... He's not going to go someplace else, very busy, lots of things to do, and have some angel come and put a crown on your head. He's not going to do that. He said, I will give you the crown of life, the celebrated reward of eternal life, of victory. Beyond the death of martyrdom is a celebrated eternal life awarded by the Lord Jesus himself. So that's part of the encouragement. The encouragement is, I know, the, the encouragement is the reward given by Jesus himself. And then, finally, no second death. Notice how the letter ends for the church. And it's very interesting because the order is different from some of the other letters. Usually, all of the rewards are put before the call, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But here Jesus reserves one of the encouragements for the very last thing the church in Smyrna is going to receive from him. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. This is a great encouragement, and it's somewhat negative, if I can put it that way. It's intended to remind People who may be fearful, he says, don't fear. But if you're fearful, remember this. If you're cowardly and you're thinking of drawing back, well, maybe I can avoid, avoid this. Jesus tells them that there is something much more to be feared than the worst death that could be imposed by mere men. There's been so much that people can do to us. The death that they administer might be by beasts. Roman, uh, the the, the uh, records of history say that they used to sew Christians up in the skin of animals and set wild dogs upon them to destroy them. It was an awful death. And the death of Polycarp was an awful death by fire. Many Christians, many Christians from the early days of Christianity through the Middle Ages, through the period of the Reformation experienced deaths like these. But there's something worse than the worst thing that people can do to you. Something much more to be feared. Jesus put it this way. Do not fear those who kill the body, but afterward have no more that they can do. But fear him who at once he has killed the body may cast you body and soul into hell. That is the second death. The second death is the worst death. If the first death is bad, if death is bad, the second death is worse. And that's what Jesus is using as an encouragement. A strange encouragement, yes, but a real encouragement he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Some people, some people will experience the second death, the horrible second death. Well, we have looked at the city of the church, Smyrna, Christ's commendation of the church, you're rich, Christ's challenge and charge to the church, don't fear, be faithful unto death, Christ's encouragements to the church. I have two simple applications. I've already seen some application. But let me make further application as we conclude. You and I are all called to heed this message to the church at Smyrna. We are called to do that. That's why we have verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear is the person 
who has been given regenerating grace and who now can listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. Why this verse 11? Well, in uh, an empire, uh, the Roman Empire, persecution unto death might come upon any church. Even the churches where the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't tell them, you, you, you're going to go through this trial. Some of you are going to die for your faith. Well, it had happened. It happened in the first century. It happened to more than one person in this church. Jesus says, some of you, some of you are going to be cast into prison, be faithful unto death. And I would say that all Christians should be determined to be faithful until death. That's a charge which Christ brings to any one of us. And think about all the violence that is perpetrated in our culture. We, uh, we rightly thank God that we're not in the midst of a civil war. Could be, could be on the horizon, it could be. I'm not saying, I'm not making any pronouncement, but my point is it could be. Could be. Now one day, somebody will come into our church and seek to kill some of us because we are the church of Jesus Christ. Could be. Again, I'm not... Not, not trying to be unrealistic or fantastic. But we need to be determined to be faithful even up to the point of death. And Jesus Christ is worthy of that kind of devotion from us. Heaven, where we will be with our Savior, is worth all the sufferings we might endure. Don't you think so, brethren? Don't you think so? Paul says momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look, not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Isn't our Savior who lived for us, obeyed for us, died for us, rose for us, and now in heaven intercedes for us. Isn't he worth that kind of devotion from you and I? Well, he is. And that's why we are called to heed this message and to be determined to be faithful until death. And faithful unto death for you and I may simply mean that we go through what one man calls the muck of life day after day, reading and praying and obeying and serving until the time when our Lord calls us home. That's application number one. We're called to heed this message from our Lord. But in the second place, everyone should think about the second death. I know that that doesn't sound like the positive message of a, of a seeker-sensitive preacher. It's not. There is such a thing as the second death, the worst death. Jesus describes it several times. He says it's the place where the worm does not die, referring to the fact that you put a body in the ground and the worms eat it. But hell is the place where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. The fire doesn't go out. The second death is, a wor is the worst death. You may die. If you die in Christ, Jesus promises you will not be hurt by the second death. But all of those who do not come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith will experience the second death. Will you experience it? I would like you to look at one more passage in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verses 5 through 8. It is the Lord Jesus once again speaking to us, 
speaking of what he is doing at the end of the age, he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now you know who that's about, the, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Lord Jesus. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But, but for the cowardly and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see the people who are going to be in that second death who are going to experience eternal torment forever? Among them are the cowardly and unbelieving. The people who hear the words of the Lord Jesus disregard them never never going to happen to me but those are the people who will experience this so i say don't wait don't delay turn to the lord jesus christ and seek his grace let's pray amen, amen. Our Lord and our God, our Savior, in whom we hope, we bow before you as your people. And we thank you for the things that you have said to strengthen and encourage us. How we thank you that you are the ever-living Savior, the one who has conquered death, the one who has promised us eternal life. We do plead that you would be gracious to us and you would help us to be faithful. Give us all the grace that you have secured by your death. Give us that unquenchable faith in you. Help us to be faithful. Come what may, help us not to turn aside or shrink back in fear, but grant us faith to the saving of the soul. And we do ask our Lord that you would take the things that we have read and seen this day and write them upon every heart, open the eyes, of those who have never truly believed in you, that they may believe and receive the grace that you have promised unto eternal life. Receive our thanks for your presence with us and dismiss us with your own blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.